As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Mick Schumacher's Formula One options are narrowing for 2023 with a few remaining seats close to being filled. But how good is he, and has he done enough to deserve a place on the grid next year? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to tackle those questions and more are Scott Mitchell Malm and Glenn Freeman. Well, Glenn, we'll come to you first. A rare appearance on the F1 podcast, usually in the world of Bring Back V10s. Do you think you can get your head in the world of the contemporary? Uh, I'll give it a go. Yeah, uh, it'd be great if we could just talk about Sebastian Vettel driving a Williams FW14B for the next hour or so. But no, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. I've dropped a few cylinders and I've got my hybrid ready. And for those who are wondering what we're talking about who don't listen to Bring Back V10s, firstly, what are you doing? That's our <laughs> sister podcast. It's a retro podcast. Focuses mainly on 1989 to 2005, but occasionally strays beyond that. So it's well worth a listen. The sixth season is just winding down at the moment, but there's loads to listen to that. Always very enjoyable to do and to listen to. And Scott Mitchell Malm, how's life? Yeah, all good. Thank you. It's nice to actually be uh, in the same room as you guys and actually recording a podcast um, together we've done so many now that obviously when we do the post race podcasts especially you me mark hughes it, that tends to be if we're all at the same race we are on site together more often than not but rare for us to have three people uh in the same room and especially when it's also someone from the sort of like the the, the business side of the business rather than the the editorial side so you to sound speak. far more important than i am oh, i think you've got a pretty grandiose title aren't you editor-in-chief brackets boss man yeah, all right. Brackets V10s. I think the uh, the describing gun is from the business side of the business. Sounds a bit like rather than just the gallivanting around, generally messing about side of the business, which kind of is us. Well, those are your job titles, <laughs> exactly, and we fulfil them very, very well. I think. 
that's uh, one of the benefits of the uh, of the job. Well, we'll set gallivanting aside for a moment and turn our attention to Mick Schumacher, Scott. He scored 12 points this season compared to teammate Kevin Magnussen's 22, but points can be an unreliable witness, particularly in lower scoring teams. So how has Schumacher really stacked up this year? Well, the points finishes and the results that have sort of that stand out as his headline achievements in 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 Formula One are just not the problem. The, the um, we've said this before, probably whenever we've talked about Mick on this podcast, the peaks really aren't the problem with him. He's he's uh, he's capable of being very quick. He is capable of piecing together entire Grand Prix weekends as well. That was one of the things that was missing pr- pretty much until the middle of this year, and then when he pieced together that little run of, of of good races, the British Grand Prix, the Austrian Grand Prix. He was doing a very good job um, in Canada before then as well. We were starting to see that capacity to bring it together and deliver the results that were needed. I, I'm glad that he was able to do that while the car was still competitive. There was a serious risk, and we've seen it with the way Hass's form has tailed off. There's a serious risk that Schumacher was going to get it all together just at the point where the team totally nosedived in terms of performance. And then he could have gone, he could realistically have gone through the year pointless. So he's done a good job with 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 that side of things. He's hitting the peaks. He's he's worked out how to piece it together. He's outperformed Magnussen in qualifying. He's done good, good clean races, aggressive drives as well, been been decisive when he's needed to be. Um actually easy to forget, but recently he did a very good job at the Dutch Grand Prix at Zanvoort. He qualified very strongly. It was a solid first stint. He was going to be in points contention, but had a problem at the pit stop. It wasn't in his control. These are all the good things. The bad thing is we we still don't see this a level of consistency that's emphatic enough to say, yeah, man, you absolutely command a place on the grid, which is kind of why we're talking about him in this podcast now. There's a reason, ultimately, he's an incumbent driver, a team already in 2022, and he doesn't have a nailed-on seat next year, which I think is it's, that speaks volumes for the situation he finds himself in. He just hasn't done enough to convince his current employer, and if you don't do that, what chance do you really have of winning over someone somewhere else? Yeah, it certainly becomes very, very difficult for him. As you said, the high points have been decent. And even there have been times recently when the Haas hasn't been very good, when he's been doing okay. Spa and Monza were very poor tracks for the Haas. It's a bit of a draggy car. So Monza in particular was was bad. And actually, Mick was doing all right there, a little bit better than Magnussen in many ways. So it's not just those few headline results that have been decent performances. He was on he was on a hiding to nothing at Monza as well because he had an absolute nightmare, didn't he? He handed over the car to Antonio Giovinazzi in FP1 and then he just had like reliability problems throughout the rest of practice. I can't remember how many laps he'd done before qualifying, it's but like it was 17 or 19, was, something like he that. He basically barely drove more than I did over the Italian Grand Prix weekend <laughs> until qualifying. It was definitely in the high teens, and it was definitely an odd number. For some reason, I remember that. So, <laughs> but you can't, but you can remember that, but you can't remember the specific number. It's harder to remember the details. Yeah. Exactly. It's, uh, it says something about the way I, I file numbers away, but. But it has been interesting because someone like Mick Schumacher, he just gets so much attention and focus, doesn't he? Largely because of the name. And he did also put a bit of extra pressure on himself by chucking the car at the scenery in quite a big way a couple of times early on this season. So do you have a little bit of sympathy for him in the situation he's in that he'll never get a completely even judgment? Or do you think that's just the game? I think that is the game and it probably doesn't it doesn't balance out the benefits you get, even if it's earlier in your career from being a Schumacher, being a famous name. Going back to the point you and Scott were discussing about the points finishes, I'm so glad Mick got to drive a proper car this year and a, a points-capable car on its day 
However, the reason we're focusing on him is that Formula One, as Scott said, the consistency is so important because the level is so high and the relentlessness is so high that it's no longer good enough to just have the occasional good day where you can put a car like he's got eighth or you can be battling to get into Q3. You've got to be that good all the time. Otherwise, you get exposed. And I feel that Mick's level probably isn't quite high enough. Now he's coming to the end of a second season where he is showing that relentlessness to hit his peaks every single weekend. And F1 just doesn't wait for you if you're not capable of delivering that every single time. I was really worried earlier in the year when there was a run of races at the start of the season where you just think he he, he is not able to do this when, when he needs to. He's being found out. You know, Kevin Magnussen's come in really safe professional pair of hands but I and I ideal benchmark as well like we said it all when Kevin got the driver like now we find out how good Mick is and I think we are getting that answer and the answer in those first few races was oh my gosh actually not that good at all because uh, Bahrain wasn't I'm just I'm gonna reel this off off the top of my head so I apologize if I overlook anything Bahrain wasn't really his fault. He wasn't as impressive as Kevin, but he was he was turned around no fault of his own at, at the start. Saudi didn't take part in the race because of because of the crash. He was actually better than Magnussen in Australia, but Haas got it slightly wrong on setup at the start of the weekend. So he sort of got it together, but the car was a bit weak. Was it Imola? Didn't he spin into Alonso at the at the start? So he he, he hurt his own race there. Miami was doing a good job tracking into the points and just foolishly launched that move on Sebastian Vettel and, and got damage. And by this point, you're already like, oh, you, you know, sooner or later, Haas is going to hit a downward curve. They're, they're just not going to keep up with the teams that they're beating at the moment. And you've missed a lot of big opportunities already. I think then in Spain, I think he was undone by team strategy or tyre management, which wasn't really his fault. Monaco crashed again. Um, it was just... <sighs> You're just getting this big body of evidence to suggest, actually, are you actually going to rise to the challenge at all? This is a team in Haas, actually, where you have to make hay in the first part of the season. Any year where they get the car comes out the blocks well, it's all the team's resource level means it's always going to fall back as the season goes on. So they need reliable, consistent drivers that they can trust to get the results when they're on the table, particularly in that first part of the season. And as Scott's outlined there, Mick just threw away too many opportunities and that put the team under pressure, put the team on the back foot. And it just, they pay for that through the rest of the season because opportunities went begging. And that's stressed by the fact that Kevin Magnussen scored 12 points across the first two races and Hass's total is 34. So that says a lot. But as you said, Scott, the season started very badly, so there was this danger that Schumacher was just going to sink without trace, wasn't there? He was on a really bad trajectory. Things were looking really shaky. The team was irritated. He was running up big repair bills. So I guess Canada was probably the point where he got onto a bit of an even keel, wasn't it? And sort of got to the level where you could say, yeah, he's, he's doing okay. He's he's not destroying his, his F1 career with this level. Yeah, when, when I remember the week before that in, in Baku, we were talking to him because he'd been given that pretty, not a dressing down, but a pretty public warning from from Gunter Steiner, the, the Haas team boss, which was, you need to sort this out, otherwise we are going to have to seriously think about what we do, do from here. And by that, Steiner meant, are we going to keep him? And in Baku, I remember speaking to Mick at, and he was he handled it really well. He, he, it was actually, it was arguably the most sort of interesting feisty engaging he's been all season where it was almost like got his back up a little bit and had to come out scrapping and 
he said, you know, I've had this in every year of my career or season. Like I've had bad starts. People have questioned me and I've actually put it together. You know, Euro F3 and F2, those title campaigns came after difficult starts of the seasons. He rallied, he did a good job and he, he got the results he needed. And he said, and I remember the phrase he used, he was just, uh, I, I always do really well under pressure, so feed me the pressure. He was happy for people to talk about it. The problem was, he then followed that up with a really underwhelming backer weekend, which was, I think, partly because he had a, I think he had a reliability problem in FP1 certainly was on the back foot after Friday and just never caught up. So I was really worried. I was like, oh, you've, you've said all the right things, but on track there is no response. But then we, we got into Canada and the car, it, it clicked a little bit better there for them in, in general. There was performance and there was an opportunity on the table. And Mick did a great job in, in, in qualifying. He was putting together a really good opening stint and he had another reliability problem which ended his Grand Prix but he'd already done something in that first stint that we hadn't seen since Miami which that glimmer of here we go there's something here and what was great was that he then used that as a bit of a springboard so he was then very impressive I think the next one would have been the British Grand Prix so I think that was when he obviously got his first points finish which he had to really earn that was a really complicated race he did a good job a good job there and it just there was this little mini run Canada uh, Silverstone, Austria as well, which was just more impressive, more competitive. And you started to think, okay, if this is your level and you maintain this, this is what you need to do. To And if he if he did that from that point onwards to the end of the season, there would be a very strong case for Haas to keep him. And it's interesting because while Magnussen has been the better qualifier overall, Schumacher's race results haven't been too bad. Three of the last four, he's finished ahead of Magnussen, admittedly at a time when things aren't going great for for Haas overall, but yeah, if you're finishing 12th and your teammate 16th, that's a, a decent job as, as happened at, at Monza. So there's, there's signs there. But that's the unfortunate thing, isn't it? To go back to what Scott said about, oh, I might start slowly in a season, but I'll get my act together as the year goes on. That's fine in F3 and F2, where the competitiveness of your car and your package remains pretty much the same for the whole season. He's at a team. He's at the worst team possible in in a way for that because he's at a team, as we say, that is almost guaranteed to decline over the course of the season. So, if he gets it together, as Scott said, over the rest of this season, unfortunately, it's almost certainly going to be in a car that's slower than it would have been if he could have done that in the first eight races of the year, for example. Yeah, they've they've got a chance maybe in a few of the races that higher downforce because the car's reasonably good on downforce level. It's too draggy which is a problem. So they always knew this spell would be difficult. Mick Schumacher did get into Q3 at Zandvoort, but we tried to pick out quite a few of the positives about Schumacher here, primarily because I feel the overall narrative has been pretty negative and for decent reasons. So it's very, very difficult to make a case, isn't it, Scott, that he's done enough to... People talk about deserving a seat. He has shown himself to be a decent enough F1 driver, and I don't consider at this level decent to be a particularly massive praise, but he's at least not out of his depth. But he's certainly not made an unequivocal case, has he? He's As all these number of seats are reducing, he's always down the list, and that's probably a consequence of performance. Yeah, and I think there's all, there's a bit of an element of he's not made a, he's not really made a case for them to drop him, but he hasn't done enough for them to keep him. So if you if you ignore... If you ignored the crashes in the first part of the season and you if you judged him on Baku or Austria onwards to now, there's not really much argument to get rid of him. 
like he hasn't really done anything wrong. He scored points at the races where the car's been the most it's most competitive. Again, he was quick at Zandvoort when the car was. Has has lost its way a little bit around introducing this new upgrade. There, there was, it, it obviously the car wasn't just wasn't competitive in Hungary, Spa, Monza in particular. But there's also been an element of them just trying to work out why this one massive upgrade they've brought seems to have brought performance, but hasn't really made much dent in the in the midfield pecking order. So. They're still trying to get on top of that. But within that run, you, you mentioned him beating beating Magnussen a few times in the last few events as well. Like he's not you're not I'm not looking at Schumacher and saying you are not performing like a driver who who can keep their seat. Like actually he's I think he's doing a decent job. And I think he would I don't see any reason why if you judged it on this spell, why you would drop him. The problem is is that Mick put himself on the back foot at the start of the year, he needed to make a case to be kept. And that is different to, 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 there are some drivers who are basically just, don't want, don't give the team a reason to drop you. But Mick was in that position at the start of the year and he gave them a reason to drop him in those first few races. Since then he's been meant, what he's needed to do was emphatically say, you need to keep me because look how great I am. Whereas all, all that he's really done is probably reaffirmed Hass's opinion, which was, you can do it, but there is just a bit of a question mark over you. Yeah, if you're going to make being solid your calling card, you've got to be solid all the way through, haven't you? That's kind of the the deal that that you strike with it. And obviously, you mentioned Magnussen earlier, Glenn. He's in so many ways the ideal teammate. You mentioned Benchmark. He's good in that regard. But he's also someone who, if you're someone who's going to be a future Ferrari driver, as obviously Schumacher will have aspired to be once, I think that ship's probably sailed now. But... There is space above the level Magnussen operates for you to park yourself in. If it was a George Russell of three years ago jumping in there as a rookie or a Charles Leclerc or someone like that, they would be outperforming Magnussen and Schumacher's a long way off that. So I think that stack up has shown that there's just not that massive upside to him somewhere. There's no superstar quality there. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think we probably all suspected that of Mick before he came to F1. And if you were being generous, you kind of hoped that he might be able to prove us wrong. But what you say about Magnussen is is absolutely right. He's a, a good benchmark, but a beatable benchmark if you're that good, if 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 you are if you are a superstar. And if, if he want if Mick wanted to make the point to Ferrari of I need to be in consideration for a seat with you in the future, or you need to find me a seat further up the grid to see how good I can be in, in a higher pressure situation, he would have to have got on top of Kevin at some point and just be regularly outpacing him over one lap and race performance. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You should say, Scott, that the Schumacher name is a bit of a millstone, isn't it? Because he wouldn't have quite so much attention and interest. It is a double-edged sword. There's benefits to it as well. But... We've got to judge him just as an F1 driver rather than as someone with a famous surname, haven't we? Yes, but I think there's another element of being a Schumacher that's counting against him at the moment, which is what he has basically carried with him for the last few years with an awful lot of protection around him 
an awful lot of care and caution about what he says, who has access to him, how people treat him. Teams should be really nice to him instead of being like Gunter Steiner treats drivers. And there's been very, very clear messaging from, uh, you can see it in German media in, in, in particular, that there's a definite feeling from what I will, to avoid names, I will call the Schumacher camp, that he has not been fairly treated or should have been treated more nicely by Haas this year. And I just think that there's an element of, if he was a more dynamic character, if there was a bit less of a fear that you've got baggage coming with you if you're kept in the team or signed by someone else, then I think that as an all-round prospect, you become more appealing. So with Mick, the problem is, is that he hasn't made a he hasn't made an absolutely stunning case on track. And I think there are drawbacks to having him off track as well. I, I don't feel like that's been... I don't think he's a problem as a person and a driver. I don't think he's difficult. I don't want to make this sound like it's Mick that is personally an issue there. But there's clearly something going on that has meant that that's a less than harmonious atmosphere at Haas at times this year. And I just feel like with the upsides you could potentially get by replacing him on track, then you've just got a bit of a push factor there, which it feels a bit unfair to be honest, because I'm not 100% sure it's Mick's fault. But I think it's just that fact of he is Mick Schumacher. And this is something that has been with him for a while. And if he wasn't standing on track, I feel like it would always be there in the background. Yeah, that's very, very uh, true. I mean, Glenn, Scott alluded to the fact Stein has been very direct in his public comments. Are you surprised by that approach? And what part do you think Steiner and Hass have played in souring this relationship a little bit? Um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised to hear Gunther Steiner tell us what he really thinks. Um, I was surprised, though, that he went that far about his own driver in public almost what felt like that quickly. I know it was really, it was really the, the second big accident in Monaco was the trigger. I don't remember it being that bad after the Saudi crash, but it was, it was ruthless. And I think it spoke to a team that wasn't necessarily in the mood to protect a driver, which perhaps hints at some of the stuff Scott is talking about. So of all the team bosses that might come out with something like that, Gunter is the one that, you would probably expect. Netflix are probably disappointed that he didn't save it for the next series of Drive to Survive and he told everybody in May. I I think that is, that's a consequence of the situation rather than a cause of any of the tension. I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think the team have created an issue by voicing that stuff. I imagine what Scott's hinting at was already there and that maybe just meant that even Steiner's limited filter that he might have was not going to turn up in this situation. And maybe he just got to the point where he thought, whatever I'm saying behind the scenes isn't working. So we have we have got to try and go public and see if that does get a reaction from the driver. I think there's just a lot of times where Steiner's just like, what benefit is there for me lying, but also like over-egging it? So he's just being honest because he says, you know, what what good does it do him and the team by publicly saying Mick needs to do a better job. Mick knew he needed to do a better job. Mick had put it in the wall twice in six races and forced himself to miss an entire Grand Prix because of it. So 
Gunter's point was always, I'm not telling him anything he doesn't know. So I think that was always part of the justification. And it was just making, I think there was an element of put a bit of pressure on potentially because it's a, look, we're not just going to, we'll put an arm around you if you need it, but we're also not going to completely protect you when it's entirely self-inflicted. There was a bit of it after Jeddah. There was a start. There was clear, there was a clear annoyance. Once they once they knew the first priority, obviously, was that Mick was okay because it was a heavy impact. But once they knew he was okay, there was clear annoyance that, that they made decisions. They could have repaired that car on the, for the Sunday. He could have competed in the race. But the team made the decision, actually, with, you know, pressure, pressure start to the season, limited on spares, all of this. Australia coming up, you know, the freight for that is awkward. And, you know, and you've got to come back and do some more races. It's actually easier for us to just not do this Grand Prix. I get the the, the, the logic behind it absolutely sound. I don't, I don't question it. Like, it... it in terms of its legitimacy, but that that felt quite pointed. It was basically a no. We're not going to make the massive effort required to put you out in the Grand Prix tomorrow because you've kind of brought this on yourself, and we actually need to think about beyond this. So, I think there was that tension creeping in quite early. But the thing is, the crashes are obviously mixed fault, and there comes a point where he wasn't learning, and I feel like he has now got a better idea of where the limit is. So I think he's had to learn the hard way. But he crashed a lot last year. There was a point where I think he, I think after Monaco, I think he had a crash rate of one in three or four events in big, big events. He was the one that was, he was the one that was doing the crashing at Haas more than Mazepin, actually. Yeah, exactly. So like this record was already there. Steiner had started the year saying we can't afford that because it's going to really screw us over, and he carried on doing it anyway. He obviously wasn't out of spite or intention or anything. So a lot of it's self-inflicted. The one thing I would just the one thing I think is important to stress is. I do actually have a bit of sympathy for where Mick is at the moment, partly because, and I'm sure we're about to get onto this, so I apologise because I'm kind of wrecking your running order here, Ed, but he's not going to be replaced by a stunning driver with respect to the options that Haas have. And I kind of feel like it's really unfortunate for him that he is being pushed aside effectively when there aren't really any stunning options to, to replace him. I don't feel like he's done a bad enough job on track to be to be shunted aside for, I don't want to say an also ran because that's really disrespectful, but someone who hasn't, like Nico Hulkenberg, for example, hasn't raced full-time since 2019 and he's in his mid-30s. Has Mick really done that bad a job to merit being replaced by someone like that? I'm not convinced he has, but I think with all the other factors, the fact that he was so crash-heavy, the fact that there were doubts about him, the fact that there's some baggage off track, the fact that he has also picked a few fights this year in terms of being a bit pushy with the team when he really should have probably known his place a bit better because he hadn't got the results to earn that. That it's just almost sort of conspired in this mix of circumstances, none of which are grand enough on their own to stop Mick from having a drive, but they just come together to mean that even in this most underwhelming of set of options that Haas finds himself, Mick still isn't the number one choice for next year. It's also that he put himself on the back foot by start by having all the problems in a chunk at the start of the season, if he'd if you bag a couple of good results early on, if you were, if you were even behind Kevin Magnussen but backing him up early on, and then maybe you go you have you go off the rails in the middle of the season, it's okay because you're doing it from a position of credit. Mick put himself so far behind where he needed to be that even when he started to get it together, he was only bringing himself back to where they wanted him to be in the beginning. They've had all of that time where he's been underperforming or crashing to think about these alternatives. And these alternatives who, as we'll get to, are probably people that aren't racing 
they look better every time Mick disappoints the team in some way. So it possibly is harsh. And if he if he finishes, if the second half of this season for Mick looks fine and he's done a solid job, you might say, well, if you carry that into a third year, you would be just as good as the alternatives. The problem is his, he was coming from a damaged goods position earlier this year. Yeah, and we should say there's still a chance Schumacher could stay there. He's not completely out of the running, but it's fair to say he's not at the top of the list. So he could yet turn it round and Haas might have a few better races coming up. So still a chance, but he's not in a brilliant position. As you say, Glenn, he doesn't have much credit in the bank. So not an ideal situation. Well, let's talk about Grid Rival for a moment now. Of course, Grid Rival is the fantasy motorsport game in which the race has its own league. For a change, we've actually got someone who is doing well in the league in Glen here. Miles ahead of Scott, even more miles ahead of me. What is your secret? I'd love to, I'd love to, have, to have a secret. I'd, lo- I'd love to have a reason for why it's going so well. When we, I, I have to say that one of the main reasons I've remembered to keep up to date with my team and do all the bits you're supposed to do is by listening to this podcast and hearing you guys talk about it. However, I've also worked out that not listening to any of your tips is the way forward. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've checked out what I'm doing for the next race. I've already set my team for Singapore. It's important to get that in. Um, and uh, it's good that we're saying that Haas have got a draggy car and Singapore might be one of the places where they'll be okay because I've boxed myself into a corner where I've got both their drivers for the next race. But my other drivers are Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz. I'm not quite sure how I've managed that. I've got those three as well. Okay. And Kevin Magnussen. Yeah. Well, uh, so you'll be fine in the next one because you've basically got the same team as me. So I said, the, I said to you guys beforehand, the one mistake I made was a few races ago where I had Verstappen and Leclerc and they were scoring all of my points, which is why in our league I, I'm, I'm 65th, which against you two looks like a brilliant performance. Um, but I made a mistake at one point where I had both of those drivers under contract, but they, their contracts ended at the same time. And I've, I've had to pay the price a few times for trying to undo that mistake. So I think a tip I would give people is if you've got a strong team, make sure they don't all disappear from your lineup <laughs> in the same race. Yeah, because then you end up in a situation where you have to sign Nicholas Latifi or something, which both myself and Scott have done. Yeah, I haven't had to do that yet. That's probably your secret. Don't sign Nicholas Latifi. I, I thought uh, I was actually playing a blinder by signing Latifi for Monza because I only had like a f- small amount of money for my for my final slot. And I thought, actually, that, you know, that Williams, I re- reckon, you know, even a you know a lesser driver, no one fancies in that car, I reckon you can absolutely sneak a top 10 in that in that car at Monza. And I was absolutely right, but it wasn't Latifi, did it? It was the guy who hasn't blooming raced the car all season that got it. <laughs> Should have seen that one coming, definitely. But I'm hoping for a strong uh, strong finish to the season because I'm aiming for a big campaign next year. So it's all about next year. That's where the R&D work is going. That's where the investment is. I'm not bringing new parts to the uh, to the races. It's all about... Spoken like a true underperforming yeah, team. Yeah, so you've just switched the we go again mode, haven't you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm going to keep doing it. And if it starts badly next year, I'll go to we go again. And it'll all be about 2024. And Grid Rival is still open for sign-ups for those who want to get a little bit of practice ahead of next year. We'll keep tracking progress over the rest of this season. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Right, Glenn, we've talked about him a little bit, but Nico Hulkenberg... He's very much in the mix for a Haas seat. He seems to be more favoured than Mick Schumacher without a full-time F1 drive since the end of 2019. 
as we've said. So is he worth bringing back for a team like Haas? I, I think he is, but I fear this is because I covered all of the high points of his pre-F1 career. I, I covered his breakout shock emergence in A1GP. I covered his F3 Euro Series success. Covered. I remember his, we were at the Norris ring when he won from 17th. 17th yeah, road, yeah. yeah that, was, that was ridiculous. And that wasn't even the year he won the championship. Uh, so when he got to F1, I was convinced because he used to be managed by Willy Weber, didn't he? Michael Schumacher's old manager. So I was, he was a proper next Schumacher. I was convinced he was the next Schumacher, even more than Mick could ever be. Um, where you have to say that Scott's assessment of him earlier is possibly fair as well, but I have remained a Hulkenberg believer even as his, his career trailed off into that kind of midfield obscurity is not the right word, but just midfield kind of regularity. But we were talking earlier about Haas is always going to be a team where you have to take the results when they're on the table because they won't always be there. And I think that even if, you know, he's 35, as Scott mentioned, I, I think that still means he's the right sort of driver for that team. Whether that means, you know, is a Hulkenberg and Magnussen lineup too uninspiring? Possibly. You maybe like one of those drivers to be a young, exciting talent, but I'd want them to be younger and more exciting than Mick Schumacher. So if trying to put ourselves in Gunther Seiner's shoes again, I think I would look at that lineup and go, that's probably going to get me somewhere near the amount of points I would think are available to my team over a season. So I think he's a very appealing option. I would also say that he's had these stand-in performances over the last couple of years while he's not had a full-time drive. And I don't get the impression that he's losing anything, that there's a risk that you can only stay out of full-time F1 for a certain amount of time, even if you're Fernando Alonso, for example. But I still think that it would only be a one or two year thing, maybe. But I think the time and the place might just be right. I think it just comes down to what version of Hulkenberg you are getting. If you're getting anything like the driver he was, even when he lost the Renault drive in 2019, you know, he gave Ricardo, he made Ricardo work really hard to establish himself at the Renault Works team then it's a no-brainer. That will be an upgrade on Schumacher. But he has had these substitute appearances and some of them have been pretty remarkable with like the job that he did at, at short notice. But it's been very, very infrequent, obviously just by by nature. He, he has got a bit older. There are some question marks over the shape he has uh, kept himself in. And that's, I mean, it's hardly... You don't take one look at him. He has hardly let himself go. But is he? how F1 fit is he? How committed is he to that lifestyle? Again, there are some people who have worked with him or worked in proximity to him. Like He sounds like he has enjoyed not having to worry about the rigours of, of being F1 fit and just being around F1 as much as that. But he has also kept himself in it. Like He has made sure you know, he got that formalised Aston Martin role this year, which... Um, that team were absolutely right to do because yet again they needed a, a, a COVID substitute at the start of the season. And qualified Lance Stroll straight out of the box. Okay, it's only Lance Stroll, but brand new cars, no testing. Yeah, proper achievement. Yeah, so so there are there are clearly moments there where you think it does look like he could be the driver that he 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 was even when his full time career was coming to an end the first time. So you're trading that question mark of of Mick against that. I I, I do see it again, especially if you just think you know. 
Steiner is absolutely no nonsense. Haas is a no nonsense team. Hulk is an absolutely no nonsense driver. So they, they they should fit together quite well. I think the dynamic element of it will probably be a bit better than keeping Schumacher around. So so I, I do understand that. It's just it doesn't feel like the most inspired choice. And again, this comes back to it's not really that I necessarily think Schumacher is absolutely the better of the two choices. I don't even know if Schumacher's got a higher ceiling than Hulk does, to be completely honest. But it's just, if you're looking at the almost like F1 version of the circle of life, you know, drivers come and go, they have their chances. Nico has. And it's just, I just kind of feel like the way Schumacher's been the last three months, should we say, the job that he has done, whether the cars had the performance in it or not, I'm I'm just gonna say I'm not one hundred percent sure that that's worth throwing away for 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 a Hulkenberg, just purely because of where Hulkenberg is at the in in his career. That said, if that is the choice they make, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it would be a good choice, but I think he is the only option that makes sense. I wouldn't take an Antonio Giovinazzi, for example, over a Schumacher. Well, this uh, was going to be my yeah. this was going to be my question to you. You say is Hulkenberg an inspiring choice? Is there an inspiring choice available? Because I, I don't see one. It sounds like you don't see one either. So then I think you have to say, we're Haas. It's not our job to create a lineup that other people can say is in- inspiring. It's our job to look at our options. And in this case, let's say it's just Mick Schumacher versus Nico Hulkenberg. Who's going to get us the most, most points at the end of the season? If Hulkenberg's 35 and he's a short-term option, we'll worry about replacing him in a year or two. But is he the best option for next year? I think he is. He's the best option of the um, reserve drivers who you could bring from bring in from the cold. Like I say, Giovinazzi is. I, I wouldn't. I would certainly take Hulk over over Giovinazzi. What What's interesting there? It just it just comes. Hass will be the ones with all the data on Schumacher. If if they if they have seen over the last six or seven events, actually, you know, if this oh, if the car was this quick, actually, he would be there. He'd be doing what Kevin did at the start of the season. You know, they have the data that and the the first hand experience that would tell them it would give them that gut feeling that he's capable of doing that. And they might still be willing to look at that as well. It's telling that they're holding off rather than going for something. Hulkenberg's not really going anywhere, is it? I know he was one that Alpine sort of had as a possibility, but I don't think that's going to happen. So they've they've got time. Yeah, Hulk will be that safe. You know what you get option from now until February next year. They could look at the you pointed out the job he did for Aston Martin when he stood in for Sebastian Vettel this year. They could literally wait until like the Thursday before Bahrain and then just go. <laughs> oh, actually, no, we do need you, Nico. So I don't think it will come to that. Obviously, they'll, they'll make the decision. They might even make the decision before the end of this season it, it, itself. It just. It just it's it's a it's a shame for F one as much as anything else that you've you've got to this point where you're thinking of getting rid of the Formula Two champion from two seasons ago. What's the best option to replace him with? A thirty five year old that hasn't raced since twenty nineteen. He won that championship in two thousand and nine, <laughs> was it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, if you're looking for an inspired left field option, I I think I assume they tried. I assume that it was rebuffed. But if you're in Hass's position and you know that he's probably done some kind of deal with McLaren to make sure he gets his salary for next season, you think you throw everything at getting Daniel Ricciardo in if your you car. Can do that, that. Yeah, I, I, that would have made the most sense to me. And, I, yeah. and Steiner never ruled it out, but there hasn't been any murmurings on, on that for, for a while. So I'm wondering if there was either a little bit of touching base and Ricciardo went, I'd just rather not drive at all next year. 
I do think Hulkenberg fits in very well with the team's ethos of kind of trying to be, as you say, no nonsense, avoids all the baggage. He's not a politician. He won't be playing games in the media and no one connected to him will be doing anything. And I think they like that. That works well for Haas. So it's two drivers who are quite straightforward to deal with. But I have just thought of an absolute cast iron reason not to hire him. And I think we can all agree the the second, the second they announce him, there is going to be all manner of annoying people dragging up the Hulkenberg Magnuson, not a feud uh. from her. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly the noise that I made in my head when I thought of it. And there's just going to be lots of um, X my balls, honey jokes and stuff like this. And it's just going to be... Bring on the memes. It's just going to be horrific. And it will go on until two or three races into the season one. So it's going to be months we'll have to put up with the, that. The best thing they could do is own it straight away. Do some sort of announcement video. Don't actually do what Kevin said, but do something where they make a joke of it. Because if they take ownership of it straight away, you take away people's ability to make that funny. Yeah, that's very true. And The on- face you two pulled when I said they should do a video together at the start. You wondered where I was going, Yeah, didn't I did, did wonder. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things that, yes, you have to be wary about dynamics between teammates. But the Magnuson Hulkenberg thing, it wasn't really a big thing. They were fine. It, they, they, it's, it's not the it's, moment. That it's was not Gasly Ocon. Let's put that's quite deep rooted. <laughs> yeah. Magnuson Hulkenberg is a slightly different thing. I do want to very briefly raise one other thing that will happen with Hulkenberg, which is the most races without a podium. 181 starts, never finished on the podium. He's had 32 top six finishes. There are races he could have finished on at Monaco 2016. It was only some misfortune that meant Perez was the force India driver on the podium rather than him. That's not a good metric to use to measure Hulkenberg. He is an interesting driver. And I agree with them that there's a lot of ability in there and he has got a lot of pace. And I think probably you'll get more points out of him than Mick Schumacher. Cause I think he's just got a higher ceiling. And I think a, a kind of mature Hulkenberg who thinks, well, this is just a one, maybe two year professional job for me. I don't need to prove anything. That could work very nicely. If you're if you're convinced as Haas that you do not have to think beyond the short term, then I th- I think you're right. I think Hulkenberg probably is is the right choice. The, I think the the main argument for persevering with Mick was is that if that trajectory that recent trajectory proves to be correct and he builds on it for next year, he does become a driver that is actually an option for years to come. Whereas if you get Hulk in a year or two, you're back here having exactly the same quandary. Basically, and I'm actually like. Now, if off my head, there's a few teams around where you're like, actually, I can see where they might want to like make their next move from in a year or two's time. I've got literally no idea who has to after Hulkenberg. Like, so that would just be we're just gonna be back here in two years recording another podcast asking if they should maybe they actually maybe 37 year old Hulkenberg's the best choice for that. Will be when they sign Ricardo, he's had two <laughs> years on the sidelines somewhere, and then he's the guy who's just in different overalls every weekend. And- and we will still not be advocating Antonio Giovinazzi. Absolutely. <laughs> or they can be the place that hangs around and waits for a big team to have a prospect they want to place there. I know they're not that keen on rookies. Rookies are fine if you have really mega They're ones. good, yeah. I mean, they the mistake they made a few years ago, they ran Charles Leclerc a few times and they weren't keen on the idea of running him in a race seat. I think that was a bit of a mistake because Leclerc is a serious, serious... Whatever player. happens to him. Yeah, that reflects terribly on their judgment. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And... Obviously, Schumacher's in that position as a Ferrari prospect, but slightly, slightly different. One thing we should very briefly touch on is if Schumacher isn't a Formula One race driver next year, which at the moment seems more likely than him being on the grid, 
what do you think he does, Scott? There's a lot of talk about breaking away from Ferrari. Is there still a future there if he's not racing somewhere? I think he should only break away from Ferrari um, or certainly should only try to break away from that if it means keeping him on the grid. I think if he goes off the grid, he needs to. Otherwise, it, it doesn't disappear without a trace, but his options are much more limited. If he stays with Ferrari beyond this year and isn't a race driver, then I can absolutely see Mick as the Ferrari reserve next year alongside a, a sports car program because Ferrari are entering. I, I'm I'm just going to make myself sound ridiculous if I try and remember which version of the uh, the top class they're doing because there's different uh, acronyms, aren't there? But they're going back to Le Mans. They're going to be in the top class of the, the World Endurance Championship. They're going to need a proper program for that. Mick would be perfect. You know, great name for them. He's a young driver. I actually think he'd be quite good. I think he'd be well, quite well suited to, to endurance racing. Um, so there's that option. And then plus you keep yourself around for, for example, like a seat that might open up in a year or two's time in Formula 1. He's young enough to come back in if he if he disappears. So I think it would be a mistake for him to to leave Ferrari, but it might also not be his choice. Ferrari might look around and go, actually, like we've got that you're not a serious option for us longer term. What benefit do we have? But the way they've stuck with people like Giovinazzi and just kept them around because they fulfill a duty, I can I can see why they do the same with Mick. But they love Giovinazzi as a simulator driver, don't they? That might be the difference. Mick, I think, might actually have to prove himself as, as bringing value. Am I, have I got that right, Ed? I'm pretty sure that Giovinazzi's been credited with doing some really important work. Yeah, Giovinazzi's scene. really well. Sebastian Vettel always used to say that about him, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Schumacher does do some Ferrari simulator work still, but Giovinazzi is the primary one. But that role appeals because the the prototype campaign they're doing it's a proper hypercar the Ferrari so it, it's not the LMDH the sort of halfway house one it, it's their own car it's already racked up 5,000 plus kilometers of testing it's a pretty serious thing so actually it's not a bad way for Schumacher to go because if that performs as it should it should be a front-running car it should be something that could allow you to win Le Mans in the coming years which would be quite something so why not? Well, it was my suggestion. You're looking at me like I've like you're trying to convince me. <laughs> like, oh, that's my Stop idea. Arguing against him, Scott. <laughs> I'm trying to sell it to also, the listeners. Yeah, should we? Uh, let's also look at the romance of the idea of the Schumacher. We're not going to see the Schumacher name win in F1. He's not going to win a championship. He's not going to add to his his dad's incredible F1 CV. But the the romance and the, the just the you can I can see it written in lights. Like Schumacher wins Le Mans. If we're saying that's a realistic option, that's a brilliant thing to to pursue. And also wins Le Mans for Ferrari. I know. You, yeah, that's incredible. I, I, I have to say... Chills. I've got chills. <laughs> I never thought we would see Ferrari go for the top class of Le Mans again. So the fact they're going back anyway is is cool. And I like the idea of them peppering it with some drivers who have got some F1 pedigree, but they would have to prove themselves in sports cars because... They will be up against some opposition that has proper sports car specialists as well. I think I think if you could have it where like across your two generations you had a a, a Schumacher win in F one with Ferrari and then another Schumacher win Le Mans with Ferrari. I mean that I know that they they always these stuff operations always say that they don't make their choices on sentiment, but there 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 will be an that element one of writes it. itself. Yeah, exactly. And and mixed place there has always been a mix of merit and who he is. Like there's there's it, it's naive to think otherwise in exactly the same way as 
Um, Arthur Leclerc is uh, a, a decent young driver, but there is no way he is a Ferrari junior if his brother is not racing for Ferrari. That That's just a fact. Yeah, they love a family connection there on the Ferrari. Giuliano Alessi, uh, uh, one of the Fittipaldis was a junior as well, I think. They'll, 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 there has to be others. Is Montoya's kid a Ferrari junior? I feel that, feels like he's got potential <laughs> if he isn't already, isn't he? Anyone who's got the uh, got the name is, is going to be in, in with a chance. But it's also nice for Schumacher because he can do something Michael never did. Michael Schumacher never won Le Mans. He did race. They got fastest lap there one year. Um, I think 91 when he finished fifth or something for, for Salva Mercedes. So that'd be quite a nice uh, direction for, for him to go in. You could actually have quite a decent, like with the options from like Ferrari, obviously Ferrari have had the... You know, the GTE program for a very long time and there are loads of mega drivers in sports cars that you could pick from but if you had if they I don't know what their plan is but if they were entering two cars into Le Mans and one car was anchored by Schumacher and the other car was anchored by Giovinazzi and you've got those two XF1 guys in there then you bring in a couple of like mega stars from GTE or elsewhere because guys like um guys like uh James Collado that have been on the books uh, in 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 the past. They've also had guys that are obviously GT specialists, but they've got lots of people that have gone on to achieve really really good things um, in various disciplines in Ferrari. So they they're not going to be short of a driver pool. So you you might look at Giovinazzi or Schumacher in particular as we're speaking about him now and say, okay, I'm not going to look at him and think, oh, he's going to absolutely be the mega star in my lineup. But if you're going to just use the, the vast resources that you have to pick one or two drivers to go with him, then he's absolutely, he's not going to be a weak link. I don't think I, I like I said, I genuinely think he has the attributes to be a success in that discipline, in that era, arena of racing. And Ferrari have been running all of their frontline GT drivers in that car in testing. So people like Pierre Guidi, Collado, Fuoco, someone who doubled. Tony Fire. F1, yeah. Regon, who's been a simulation driver from Daniel Serra. So that, there's loads of, of good drivers there. Personally, I'd like them to have Nicola Larini in the car. He's a, a Ferrari driver. From the What's Luca Badoa up to? Is he around? <laughs> he's been a bit quiet over the past years. Mark Genet's still on Ferrari's books. Yeah, yeah. He's got a great Le Mans record as well. So one to consider. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. Is versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com 
forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Right, well, one team, Scott, that's been fairly quiet in the driver market recently in terms of signing people is Williams. Where they've not been quiet is the fact that they announced at the end of last week that Nicholas Latifi won't be continuing. Not shocked. A, I'm shocked. <laughs> not a great surprise, but he had a, a, that tiny vestige of a chance once they realised Piastri wasn't going there on okay. loan. Tiny, yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny. I think the the idea was that if he performed brilliantly in a run of races, he might change his. Might future. also just be the best of the options because yeah, there was a realistic situation where they didn't have anyone that they wanted. Someone like Logan Sargent didn't qualify for a super license. Latifi's got three years of F1 experience, knows the team and the 2022 car. So actually. You know, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> exactly. Well, they could get the checkbook out as well, Latifi's to, to do it. But that's not going to happen. He's had his three years. So there is a vacancy there for sure, which we kind of knew already. Who actually is favourite to be Alex Albon's teammate next year? I have a feeling it's currently Logan Sargent. I, I think Williams' preferred option is Nick DeVries. Uh, after the performance he did at Monza. The most in-demand Formula 1 driver in the world, of course. Yeah, now. exactly. Um, it's like when it's like in football, if there's like one player who has like one great weekend, all of a sudden they're just like the greatest player in history for a little while. Um, I think I think De Vries was, was very much in demand at Williams before his uh, Italy super sub outing. The problem is the Monza outing was so good, I think it's actually like, I think it's going to cost Williams the, him as an option. I think... I think De Vries will end up at Alpha Tauri in place of Pierre Gasly so that he can go to Alpine. And then that leaves Williams in a position where they've not got Oscar Piastri on loan as they thought they were going to have. They've not got De Vries, who I think was absolute. I think if he wasn't offered a contract, I think he knew that he was going to be offered one. And then you're into third choice territory and you're looking at like out and out rookies. And a Logan Sargent is a very different prospect of rookie to a De Vries. You know, De Vries hasn't had an extensive amount of F1 testing in his career, but he's driven two proper tests for Mercedes. He's had FP1 outings for Mercedes, Aston Martin and Williams. He's a Formula 2 and Formula E champion. He's tested Toyota LMP1 cars. He's raced LMP2 cars. Like he has got an awful lot of experience. And I think that piles up on compared to your generic f3 f2 graduate that just has a fun uh, you know a, a, a fundamentally lower range of experience of cars and de Vries is a great professional as well that's something that all of the teams that have worked with him has said so sergeant will be a risk but he's a fascinating prospect and he's got a very high ceiling people forget how highly rated he was because he's one of those drivers who circumstances mean he doesn't have like the most stunning amount of career momentum and uh, the latter part of his CV is not that impressive, but he's a karting world champion. Uh, if you look at the guys that he was racing against in F4 and Formula Renault Euro Cup and Formula 3, guys like Oscar Piastri, who at times he looked better, at least as good as, if not better than, in different categories. He performed very well in Formula 3 with, not to be disrespectful, but a, a lesser outfit. Um, in his second year in Formula Three, which he, he you know he was quitting single seaters and going to sports cars because he run out, he, he didn't have any money, so he's very much sort of salvaged his single seater prospects, and I actually think he's doing a really good job as a as a rookie in Formula Two. He's a race winner in that category. 
I do think his ceiling is quite high. And I think when you're judging whether or not to take a risk on a rookie, you have to go on the ceiling because any rookie that comes in is going to have some rough edges. You look at the likes of Charles Leclerc, for example, went through like those first three races in particular at Sauber. You know, Charles went through the absolute ringer and learned very, very quickly that, that Formula 1 is not as easy as Formula 2. So I think it's Sargent. I think that is, I think I would put him top of that list, but I wouldn't rule out Schumacher being an outside option. There's a possibility they might take Alpine driver Jack Doohan on loan, but I think that requires a mad set of circumstances like Sargent not getting a super license and them deciding that they want to take someone else's driver. And Glenn, Logan Sargent's an American driver. Are you joining the excitement train for a US driver that everyone seems so keen on? He looks like it. Not particularly. I don't really, <laughs> oh, I don't really care where they're from. Um, I... <laughs> And this may be unfair on Williams because I've just spent a long time arguing about why Mick Schumacher is probably not the right man for Haas. I see Schumacher as potentially quite a good fit at Williams in that I think they have a lead driver now in Alex Albon. He's doing a great job for them. They can they can build a team around him. They do need a reliable second driver. And I think Mick could fulfill that role for them. And I came in here sort of willing to make a big case and a big pitch for Mick. Unfortunately, Williams will have all the data they need on Sargent. He, you know, he's, he's on their books. If, if they can see that high ceiling that Scott's referred to, they've got to go for it. It's, it's, Williams are not yet at, I think Williams are at a different point in their resurgence compared to Haas, where I think they still can bet on the future rather than looking right for the here and now. If, if, if Sargent wasn't around, I would say mix the guy of, of, of the of the options we've talked about. The guy's kind of hanging out on the sidelines. I think he could do the job for them. He could back Alban up. It might be a slightly lower pressure position for him and a new environment. Probably a team that might not call him out quite so quickly as, as Haas did, as we discussed previously. And <laughs> this is irrelevant. I quite like the idea of Schumacher going to Williams because they tried very briefly and failed to sign Michael in the mid-90s. Do you remember the other Schumacher? Ralph. He didn't do badly at Williams? Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about drivers who had the problem of the Schumacher name hanging over them. I think that we're massively off topic here, but I I thought of Ralph then. Ralph was a great driver in in many ways, but he was judged against an even better one purely because of his surname. He tried really, really, really hard, but in the final minutes of this podcast, we finally got brought back to V10s, didn't we? It was always going to happen. Do we think F1 wants an American? You asked if I want an American. I, I don't care either way. I don't care where he's from. I just want drivers who are good enough to be in. But do F1 want an American, especially now they're not getting Colton Herter? Yes, they want an American, but they'd actually quite like a German called Schumacher, potentially even more. So that's an interesting little balance there, because they will be lobbying and pushing. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're really struggling with the, the, the German market, and Mick is kind of like the last desperate connection there. But then the, the flip side of that, and this is one of the reasons he's a contender at, at Haas, is, is Hulkenberg. You know, the, the one-on-one sponsorship at Haas is a big deal. It's one of the things that I, th- I genuinely think that is a key think it making Hulkenberg a, a really good option for Haas because it works commercially as well. So yeah, I think you need a German driver on the grid, especially with the problem that they've got with the um with the German Grand Prix, just like it's desperate to be on the calendar, just can never put together a deal that actually works. Um but there's also the other factor, which is um, you know, unless something absolutely torpedoes it, Audi's coming into Formula One in twenty twenty six, they'll be taking over the 
the Sauber team is the expectation. And Audi certainly didn't rule out someone like Schumacher being a long-term option because they'd like the idea of having a German driver in the car. I don't really see anyone else being an option around that time other than Schumacher. I think it'd be quite. I think Audi would probably quite like having the name, especially if he's so. Do you know? Does F one do other people need him to sort of kick around long enough for him to emerge as an option there? I mean, it's you know, stranger things have happened, and that seems like such a silly thing to reference when we're talking about the twenty twenty three driver market. But if F one is desperate, more desperate to keep Schumacher on the Schumacher on the grid than bring in a back of the grid American. No disrespect to Sargent, no disrespect to Williams, but he's more likely to be back of the grid. Then I think F one would try and pull some strings to make Schumacher, make sure Schumacher's around. Yeah, they'll certainly be pushing for it. The one thing we don't know for sure is how much eagerness there is on the part of the Williams ownership to have an American driver. Doralton Capital is an American company, quite a quiet, secretive company, but they've got a portfolio of businesses, so we don't know what the business-to-business options are there, the benefits of having a American driver, who knows. But I guess one important thing for Sargent's chances is not only that question mark over the super license points, but he is driving at Austin in FP1. So that's that's a really important showcase for him show how much the American market's interested in him and show he can deal with an F1 car. Yeah, there's a lot of on and off track stuff there that just makes that, it, it does make that a no-brainer. So you're going to be, Williams are going to be able to get a closer look at him. Um, there's FP1 outings are always quite, quite difficult when it comes to a, a, an, an actual raw judgment, but it's often really good for, for, for weeding out the problems rather than it is, you know, being super impressed by someone. The best way you can impress in an FP1 is basically by not really being noticed that you're in the car. So I think that would be really good on track. Off track, it'll be interesting. I would imagine with the way F1 is at the moment that the Austin ticket sales for Friday were pretty great. As it is, I don't really think Logan driving an FP1 is going to... They're going to be like, oh my God, now we've got 400,000 people trying to get through the gates on the Friday. I can't imagine it'll be that kind of litmus test, but there'll be ways to gauge it. There'll be things like, um, especially for Williams, you know, it'll be on whether it's on social media or whatever, anything they do around Logan being in the car, does it get a better response than normal? You know, is there going to be stuff they do around the event? Will he be doing partner stuff during the week, some off-track activation, that kind of thing? What will he be doing over the weekend? Are they going to put him on American TV? That'd be, that, what, that would make be an absolute no-brainer to have him as a, a broadcaster that weekend. What I want to see now is during FP1, I want Stefano Domenicali stood on the banks at that hairpin at Turn 1, judging how loud the cheer is every time Logan comes out the pits. That's what we need to know. That would be your barometer. Can this guy make an impact? And if he goes, no, the cheers weren't loud enough. Just we got need the, to move on. Just got the idea. Just got the image now of him walking around with like an uh, electronic like measuring meter, and going around, around, and then just turning around, and you just see on the camera, and he he just goes, no, and just just make just makes that gesture, cut <laughs> cut it. No, it's done. It's done. <laughs> he could be imagining what noise we made for Colton Herter if he'd been allowed into uh, into Formula One. But Logan Sargent should have the advantage of being pretty close, at the very least, on. The super license points. So yeah, interesting situation for Williams. They're probably not going to be the first to move in the driver market, but it's fairly clear what direction that'll probably go in. Well, thanks very much, Glenn Freeman and Scott Mitchell, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. And do download our app. Just search for The Race Media in whatever particular app distributor you favour. Check out our sister podcasts, including the aforementioned Bring Back V10s, where you can hear more from Glenn. And also some of our other titles like the IndyCar podcast, Formula E, MotoGP. Lots to listen to there. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. We're going to be turning our attention now to hostilities resuming in the F1 season. So stay with us on the Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the Singapore Grand Prix. 
The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.